0: All right, so Hebrews 6.19, God has given us something of great value in our hope. According to the writer of Hebrews, it is an anchor for our souls, something true and strong that we can rely on, and God has given it because he knows how much we need it. Understand this, God would not have provided an anchor for your soul if he did not know that we need it. He would not have commanded us to use it if he did not know that we need it. There is often much ridicule and disdain poured out upon those who live on hope. But those that attack us for our hope misunderstand the power and the nature of hope. They think that hope is empty wishing, that it's got no foundation, that because we can't see its fulfillment, it has no power in our lives. But all they really show us when they ridicule us for believing in hope is that they have none themselves. They show us that their lives are void of hope and without the balancing, sustaining power of genuine hope or any knowledge of God. So what we are commanded to do as followers of Christ is to hope beyond the veil, beyond what we can see. Um, it's, It's important for us to recognize this truth that we hope upon that which is not yet seen. And that this hope surpasses the limits of both the flesh and the present moment. Your hope is not bound by what you have seen, by what you can see, or by what can be touched. Our hope is greater than what somebody else may or may not allow. So whenever somebody tells us, you can't do that, you can't believe this, you can't say this, you can't trust this, you need to recognize that nobody has the power to define your hope but God. The government does not have the right or the authority or the power to tell you what you can and cannot hope, and by their own constitution, they do not have the authority to tell you what you can and cannot say. Speak the truth. Declare the hope that is in you, and declare the reason for the hope that is in you, because the hope that is in us is an anchor for our souls. It is our confidence. It becomes our strength and our comfort as we obey the God of the universe no matter what may come. Now, I'm not telling you that if you obey God, you will not experience hardship. In fact, it's quite the opposite. As you obey God, you will experience hardship. You will experience more and more resistance to your obedience of God... Because the world hates God, I'm going to say that again, the world hates God, and despite the fact that they will tell you, no, 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 we love God, in fact, they'll even tell you we love Jesus, you need to listen carefully to what they're saying, because the way that they define both God and Jesus have nothing to do with the God and the Jesus of the Bible. They love a God, they love a Jesus that are their own imagination, that are their own creation, and that require nothing of them except their obedience to their own flesh. This is not the God of the Bible. When we proclaim the God of the Bible, the world hates us for it. And it should. Because if we declare to God that the world agreed with, are we declaring God? No, we're not. <coughs> So what I'm speaking to you about is the fact that as you hope in God and rest in God and trust in God and speak this truth, while you will receive more and more fiercer and fiercer opposition and hatred from the world, the truth of the matter is, is that as you lean into God while you're honoring him and declaring his truth, this hope sustains you. The certain knowledge that you are being obedient to God gives you strength. It is our confidence. The nature of our hope gives us confidence. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 says, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Now this defines our hope in a little bit different terminology, and it defines our hope in regards to how its nature changes us. So as you hope in God, and as you trust in Him with this hope, this anchor of your soul, becomes something that is not plodding. It becomes joyful. It becomes glad. That there is an exuberance in it. There is, there is a certainty that there is boasting in it. Because we know that what God has done is real and true and triumphant. And beloved, above all things, the church should not hide its head in shame for declaring the message of salvation unto the nations. We need to be faithfully proclaiming the truth about who Christ is, regardless of what anybody says we're allowed to say. We have an obligation. And even if they outlaw speaking the truth of the gospel, which is not outside of the realm of possibility, it should not change our declaration of the truth of the gospel. We ought to obey God rather than men. Period. And beloved, this is this is why we must understand the nature of our hope. Because if we only hope while things are easy, we don't hope. We simply rely on what we see. Oh, look, I did this and I did that and my life got better. Therefore, God is faithful and I'm good. Well, beloved, let me tell you the truth. God is faithful whether your life got physically better or not. And if you are found in Christ, you are safe and you are good regardless of how it feels. Hope stretches beyond what you can see. And it becomes a steadying force in our life that cannot be undone. Hebrews 6.11 says, We desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. This means that our hope is not dubious. It's not questionable. It's not iffy. It's not, well, I don't know if hope is actually going to deliver what it says it is. And it requires us to diligently hold fast to the promise. To believe what God has said regardless of anyone else what anyone else might say or think. And we have to know this in our very bones. You have to know this. You have to be steadfast in this knowledge that God can be trusted to deliver what God has promised no matter what comes against you. You have to hold on to the promise because every storm has the power to undo us if we are not anchored in Christ. If you do not have this steady, firm anchor for your soul, then when somebody comes against you, it will undo you. Have you ever wondered why it is that the the trans community becomes so violent when somebody says, no, you're wrong, you cannot be something that you are not? It is because in that declaration, we are challenging in their mind their very existence. They have no hope. They have no anchor. They have nothing steadfast in them. So when they are challenged, they respond with violence and aggression because there is nothing that holds them true. Beloved, you can look across the board at any sinful life and any sinful behavior and understand that this is what we see. But it ought not to be what is seen in us. Because we have a hope. Yes, the world will challenge us at every quarter. And the world will challenge us at every declaration of truth. And the world will challenge us at every exercise of not only our right, but our obligation to worship God as He requires. They will challenge us, they will threaten us, they will try to harm us, and eventually they will manage to get it done. But if our hope is steadfast in God, Those things do not do anything to us. They do not unsettle us. They do not unhinge us. Our response must be different than the responses that we see going on in the world right now. Now, I understand the temptation to give in to anger and rage. I understand it very fully. I understand the temptation to to react in kind. But I also understand that those parameters are not what is given to us as the body of Christ. Yes, I will defend what is mine. I will defend my family. I will defend my flock. But I'm not permitted to give in to anger and rage and anything else that the world says is right. I'm not permitted to use their weapons against them. I I had a conversation with one of the speakers at the Um, anti-abortion rally and we were just chatting afterwards and I made an obnoxious comment about something and he said, oh, I wish I'd thought to say that. And I said, no, don't say those things. That's why I'm not up there speaking because I am too quick and I say them and I shouldn't. (laughs) It's a problem. We need to be careful and measured in what we say and how we say it. We need to speak the truth, but we need to speak the truth in a way that is faithful to God. We need to speak the truth in a way that is faithful to his spirit and that is faithful to his nature. And the only way that we can do this is if we ourselves are not unsettled by their accusations or their attacks. Because they're not capable of touching anything that actually matters. They're not capable of touching anything that makes you who you are. They're not capable of touching anything or taking anything away from you. They can tell me that I'm wrong. They can tell me that I'm an idiot. They can tell me that I'm, I'm, I'm phobic of whatever it is they want to tell me that I'm phobic of. They can tell me that I'm racist. They can call me anything they want. But it doesn't change the basic nature of who I am. Their words are just words. And they are free to speak their opinion as loudly as they want. They have the same constitutional rights that I do. Those words are just words. And as soon as I get invested in their words, I let go of my anchor. And I become unsettled. And I become unkind. And I become unchrist-like. So it's important for me to hold fast to the truth of who I am in Christ. And to remember that the anchor of my soul is not their opinion of me. But it is what God has said it is. This anchor is true, and this anchor is firm and steadfast, and no violence or wind or storm can break it or move it from its purchase in the promise of God. The anchor of our souls is not resting in our ability to hold on to it, but it is resting in the ability of God to fulfill everything he has promised, which lifts it beyond anything that the world can touch. Look at Philippians chapter 1 with me. Philippians chapter 1, and as good as this passage is, we'll try to limit it just to a few verses. But Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 19, Paul writes, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, this is because Paul's in prison at this moment. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But Paul looks at it and he says, I have confident hope. I have an assurance that what God has promised, God will give me. And I'm not going to become ashamed in that hope or ashamed of that hope. And I will not find that hope to be wanting when it is required. I know who my God is and I'm resting everything that I am in the confident assurance of who He is. And if that means my life, and my deliverance from this prison, or it means that they take my head, it doesn't change the reality of my hope. Because for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. Do we understand the the anchoring that this gives to us? How if we know that no matter what they can do, they can't undo what God has done, It gives us strength and it gives us power and it gives us stability in the midst of chaotic times. And this hope never fails us and it never disappoints us. Romans 5.5 says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's not groundless. It's not baseless. It's not pie-in-the-sky dreaming. It is the very Word of God which is secured to our souls, which has been pressed into us, which grants us strength and comfort no matter what may come. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says this, At that time you were without Christ, being aliens and strangers from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." What you were and what you are could not be any further apart. And this is the reason for our hope. It relies upon God, a full enjoyment of everything contained in his promises to us. Now, beloved, understand this. God's promises have a timing to them. There is a fullness of time when his promises are made manifest. And some of his promises are very firmly in the not yet. And some of his promises are very firmly in the already delivered. Some of his promises say to us, wait a while and I will grant you this. And some of his promises say simply, believe what I have told you and this is already yours. It doesn't change the truth of them wherever they fall in that category. It simply changes the manifestation of them to our experience. We know that when the fullness of time is come, God will do all that God has purposed to do. I ask the question how long did Israel wait for Messiah? Well, from the time that God promised it to Abraham, 1,200 years. From the time that God promised it to Adam, 4,000 years. God was not slow in delivering his promise. He was faithful. He was true. He was completely, 100% doing what he said he would do when it was time to do it. In Galatians 4, Paul describes that as the fullness of time. Verse Four Verses 4 and 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God delivers what he promises in the fullness of time, in the promised moment. And it raises in our souls an earnest desire so that what we have is, is an expectation that, that God will deliver what He promised to deliver. That expectation is real. That expectation is powerful. That expectation is true. Look at First Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Starting at verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Now, the part that I want to focus our attention on in in the course of this conversation is the reality that the prophets who testified what was coming understood that they were prophesying something that they themselves were not going to get to participate in for a long time. But they continued to prophesy it faithfully. They continued to prophesy it with an earnest expectation that God would keep His promises. Why? Why? Because he's God, because he always keeps his promises, because the ground of their hope and the ground of their expectation goes beyond their own ability. It goes beyond their ability to see and even sometimes to understand. It was revealed to them that they were ministering the things that they were speaking, not to themselves or to their own hearers, but to us who came after. That's a lot to take in. It's a lot to try and get your head around the fact that God is doing something that just might take thousands of years. And I misspoke earlier from Abraham. It was 2,000 years, not 1,200. Sorry. Um, it, It took thousands of years for God to fulfill and complete everything that he had promised he was going to do. Now, why does that matter? Because not everything that God has promised has been handed to us yet. There's still the hope of his return. There's still the hope of, of our final sanctification. There's still the hope of the fact that our God holds some things back to himself that are kind of surprises and joys and good things that he's going to give us later. That's his right to do. And he's told us they're coming. And so we need to trust him that when they come, they'll be worth the wait. We need to trust Him that when understanding is finally granted to us about all the things that are confusing to us, it will be clear, first of all, that God was right, but second of all, that it was worth the wait and the process by which He made it known to us was the best way to reveal it to our limited understanding. We need to rest in these things because all around us, the world is going to continue to press harder and harder and attack with more force and more vigor to do its best to unhinge the church from its one job, which is the faith proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ unto all the world. We have one job. Two members of this community stepped into eternity yesterday. I knew them both, at least passingly. Did I do my job? Not well enough. We only have one calling, beloved. And in the end, the world wants nothing more than to silence us from that one calling. It wants us to build megachurches with bowling alleys and coffee shops in them. And to to feed ourselves and to make sure that we're happy and comfortable and, and obliterated from anything that actually matters. It wants us to get wrapped up into church politics about how the pastor does something you like and how the deacons does something you don't like. And it wants us to get wrapped up in the fact that I don't like this person, I don't like that group of people, and I don't like these things, and I don't like those things. Because all of those things distract us from the one thing that we've been called to do. And beloved, as soon as we stop hoping in Christ, we fall victim to those things. As soon as we stop resting and and, and resting in Him, we fall victim to those things. As soon as we allow anything but Jesus to become the main thing of who we are and what we're about, we're captured in those lies. Now, The truth is, you're not strong enough to undo the anchor that God has planted in your soul. (laughs) Amen. But if you forget that it's there, you can throw out enough slack line that when it comes up hard at the end, it's going to hurt. See, an anchor holds by keeping tension between the base of the ocean and the ship. The idea is that anchor line should be taut It should be holding fast. And it can only stay taut if the ship is being pushed. So all the chaos and all the confusion and all the hardship that's going on in the world around us should have the effect of strengthening our our grip on the anchor, strengthening the anchor's grip on the bottom and, and holding the line tight and making everything pull so that in the end we're holding fast to the God who's holding us. But none of these things happen when we allow ourselves to become distracted by the things that the world is doing. In the end, this hope springs from faith. And it fixes every ounce of its determination and every ounce of its expectation on the goodness and the fullness and the God who has promised. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Paul begins this letter to Titus just beautifully, and I just want to share with you the opening words of Titus. Chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. God promised eternal life. When? Before time began. Before he even spoke it to Abraham, this covenant of a salvation of a people was executed between the persons of the Godhead. We are the recipients of a covenant that does not involve us. The covenant that matters is the covenant between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the covenant that binds us. That's the covenant that gives us the blessing of salvation. It has nothing to do with your fragile will or your free choosing of anything. It has everything to do with the God who made you and called you and chose you and pulled you into fellowship with Him against your stubborn will. It has everything to do with Him. And nothing to do with us. And Paul said that anchor of hope, that truth is what binds us to God. It's what binds us into a reality whereby we might understand who our God is. And it has to be attached in that faith or it's utterly in vain. You ever know of a ship to take its anger and chuck it overboard and go, Oh, we forgot to tie the rope on. You never heard of that ship because it washed the ground somewhere. It's gone. <laughs> in the end, what binds us to the anchor of our souls is faith in God. And it's not your puny faith, it's not your ability to believe something. It's a faith that is a gift from God imparted to you when God called you to life. And this is the rope, this is the cable that ties you to the anchor of our souls. We trust in Him. And if this is not the core of our faith's existence, then it is absolutely bold and sinful presumption. Remember Ephesians 2.12. We read it just a few minutes ago. It says, At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What are the key components? Without Christ, strangers from the covenants of promise, no hope without God. Do you understand what Paul is laying out here? Every single human being on the planet who does not belong to Jesus Christ is a stranger from the covenants, has no hope, and they are without God because they are without Christ. There, there is no other option. There is no other alternative for salvation. There is no other way by which somebody might find a back door into heaven. And J.C. Ryle pointed out that if somebody did manage to find a back door into heaven, they would jump out the first window they came to because they would find heaven to be hell itself. Because what heaven is, is the presence of God unvarnished and unblemished, it is the presence of God without filter. And a lost man finding his way into heaven would find it to be the hell that he is destined for. We need to understand that everything that we do is to be delivered to a people who, apart from Christ, have no hope. So there can be no compromise on the reality of a need for Christ. There can be no compromise on the reality of a need for Christ and he is defined in the Bible. Which means a Christ who has standards that he says, do this, it is sinful, and you will be punished for it. Do this, and it is what I require of you. You're not saved by your works, but you are called unto them. And there is no escape from that reality. God has not changed his position on anything that he ever said, don't do. He has not changed his position on anything that he has ever said, thou shalt not. The law remains in force as far as the moral law of God goes. The Ten Commandments matter as much today as they ever did. Why is this important? Well, because the easy-believing Jesus that the world loves doesn't have any standards at all. And much of the church has a pick-and-choose, multiple-choice sort of standard in regards to God's law will acknowledge this one because it's easy for me, but I'll deny that one because I really don't want to. It's how we live. It's how we function. In the end, what God tells us is that He is the maker of all of our rule and He is the maker of all of our hope and that we have to be anxious to find Him without anything else. This is the outpouring of our faith and this is what receives its benefit from God. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God willed To make known what are the riches of the glory in this, the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This hope is Christ in you. At the bottom of all of it, it is this mysterious reality by which the living Christ imparts himself to you. At the bottom of all of it, it is this mysterious reality by which God says, I have taken the sin of Josh and I have counted it to Christ Jesus and punished it fully in the cross. And I have taken the righteousness of Jesus and I have attributed it to Joshua and said, He is now my precious son. This is the exchange that makes us whole. And it is absolutely inconceivable and absolutely unbelievable and absolutely beyond anything that any man could ever have imagined. Which is why we take the truth of it and chalk it full of all kinds of garbage to somehow make it palatable to us. Oh yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to do this and do this and do this and belong to this church and go here and say these things. And by doing those things, then you will somehow earn the favor of God, which will then impart Jesus to you. That's, that's man's religion. Dress it up however you want. Attach whatever rules you want to attach to it. That's man's religion. God says, my law exists because it defines my nature. And its one job is to show you that you need grace. But I don't excuse you from expecting you to obey it after I have made you mine. Because it is still my nature. There's just no merit in it. That makes sense? Beloved, our hope has nothing to do with our action. It has nothing to do with our works. It has everything to do with Christ. But we cannot come to Christ while we still cling to sin. This anchor allows us to be steady in the storm. It allows us to be sure and form. It is steadfast and stable. It is invincible against all opposition. And it is because the nature of our hope is grounded in the nature of Christ. It's grounded in the nature of His work. It's grounded in the nature of His promise. It's grounded in His nature. And it allows us to be at rest when all around us is in chaos. Remember I said the ship needs a storm around it to pull it tight against the anchor? Well, it's kind of chaotic being out there, but you're being held fast. You're being held where you need to be. And it is God who is doing this for you. It translates that rest and calm to us, and it keeps us where we belong, and it doesn't allow us to be driven about with every wind of doctrine. Ephesians 4, verses 13 and 14 says, Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. If you spend just five minutes on YouTube, you will find at least a hundred people telling you they have some new revelation from God that redefines Christianity. (laughs) It's all lies. We don't need a new revelation from God to redefine Christianity. We need an old revelation from God taken into our minds, taken into our hearts, taken into our lives by the medium of His Spirit by the medium of his truth, by obedience in reading it, taking it in, meditating on it, praying through it, understanding what God has said. I don't have any problem with YouTube. That's not my point. The point is, is that everything that we do needs to be based and grounded and rooted in the truth of God's word, especially where it concerns matters of Life. It is the word of God which shapes us and it is the word of God that gives us hope and it is the wisdom that defines us and the wisdom that drives us and it's not going to make any sense to anyone who does not possess it. You can stand steadfast with your hands clinging to the truth of God knowing that the anchor is buried all the way up to the bottom edge of the flukes in the ground, in in the bottom of the ocean knowing that the cable is true and strong, and feeling it thrumming against the pounding of the storm. And you can try to express these things to a world and say, I'm not worried about your virus, and I'm not worried about your chaos, and I'm not worried about your financial implosions, I'm not worried about any of those things, because my God is bigger than all of them, and they're going to look at you like you're insane, because they don't understand any of it. They can't. They cannot understand anything that is spiritually derived because they are inimical to that which is spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of God, nor can he, for they are spiritually discerned. Do not expect them to understand why you are at peace. They might ask, And when they do, the scripture tells us to be ready to have an answer to give those who ask you. But don't expect them to understand it. Our hope pierces through the darkness, it is our birthright. And nothing that the world does can keep you from your birthright. Nothing that the world does can keep you from the promises of God, it is your inheritance. The only thing that can keep you from your birthright of the inheritance of hope is you. Now, understanding that I believe in a sovereign God, if God allows you to go down that road, it's because he has something to teach you by walking down that road. You haven't done anything that God's up there going, no, not that way, dummy. (laughs) That's not how it works. Thank God, <laughs> because we've all walked down some dark roads. So ultimately, and at the bottom of it all, there is good for us even there. But I, I, would, I would caution and urge and plead with you not to willingly subject yourself to such things. Hear the truth of God and, and let your anchor and your hope and your rest be found in Him. It is your birthright to have hope. You've been made alive. You were dead. You were spiritually dead. You were Lazarus in the tomb. Four days, Lord, he stinketh. You were dead. And God called you to life and gave you a spirit of living truth within you. And then He gave you His own spirit to dwell in you and to abide in you and to translate His word to you and to help you remember it and to help you understand it. He's done all of these things so that you might have hope. It is your birthright. And it transports you across the miles and the millennia that may still wait until God finally realizes His final promises to us. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen today. But it might be thousands of years yet. We don't know. It's presumptuous of us to look at the things that are going on around us and say, oh, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Look how bad the world is. You know what? The world has been bad for a really long time. And anybody who doesn't understand that just has no knowledge of history. It's been bad since before Jesus walked on it. He wants some depressing reading. Go read Judges. Oof. Hope is your birthright. And it transports you past whatever it is that you're facing and locks you into the very presence of God. It is what God has given you to sustain you in these days. It is an anchor for your souls because you are going to be exposed to storms. You're going to be exposed to the stress of spiritual danger. You're going to be exposed to persecution. You're going to be exposed to affliction and temptation. You're going to be exposed to fear. You're going to be tempted to sin. You're going to be exposed to death. (coughs) And those storms, they're violent. They're urgent. And they're fierce. Beloved, understand this. I know that they're painful. But I also know that the Christ who has been given to us has given us hope that is rooted in His work. Now what was that work? Well, come back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 This hope we have is an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil. Christ entered behind the veil. That simple fact changes everything that you face today. There, were, there was a story told about a passenger on a ship who in the midst of a storm went up to the place where the captain is. I don't even know the name of the place. I'm not a ship guy. The cabin, I guess, or the helm. Wherever the captain was doing his captain duties. I've just ruined the story, but you'll get the point in a minute. <laughs> And he said, Captain, don't you see the danger all around us? And the captain was doing his job and he didn't answer. And he grabbed the captain by the coattail and he said, Captain, don't you see the fear all around us? And the captain said, Fear I see much of. Danger none. Go away. You understand? We're surrounded by fear. The fear, it has no power over us. It has no ability to touch anything in you because Christ has entered the veil. Death has no power in your life any longer because Christ has entered the veil. Pain and suffering will one day end and you will be translated into glory because Christ has entered the veil. Sorrow Will one day cease. Because Christ has entered the veil. Everything that makes this life difficult. Will one day stop. Because Christ has entered the veil. And the truth that that translates into our lives. Is that for every moment that God has determined. That you are to stay here and serve. Nothing has the power to harm you. Because Christ has entered the veil. He has moved beyond what separated us from God. What was the veil? What was the picture here? It was the veil of the temple. It was the woven fabric. Some some accounts tell us that the fabric was woven over a foot thick. So many layers built up. It was just this massive barrier to keep us out of the place where God dwelt. The Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, inside of the Ark of the Covenant, the remains of the tablets that Moses broke. The rod of Aaron that budded, the jar of manna. These things as reminders, these things of shadows, of types and symbols. But what was really the power of the Holy of Holies? It was the top of the Ark. It was the mercy seat of God. It represented the throne room of God. It represented the place where God's presence was in judgment and in grace. And the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year with the blood of the sacrifice of atonement. And he would scatter the blood on the mercy seat. And it was enough to stave off the anger of God for the sins of the people for yet another year. But in a year, he would go back and do it again. Because all of these sacrifices were incomplete. All of these sacrifices were insubstantial. They were not enough. For the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Therefore, Christ entered into the veil with his own blood. He entered into the veil with his own life as sacrifice. And he did not enter into the temple as we understand it. Instead, he entered into the holiest place. He entered into the very presence of God. Christ took his sacrifice to the real mercy seat. He took his sacrifice to the very throne of God and laid his own life and blood at the feet of God and said, I have paid the price. And God said, it is enough. And I have received that payment as satisfactory in my sight. And we know that he has received it because Christ did not stay dead. He was raised, according to Paul and Romans, because of our justification. Which means that the resurrection of Christ in the empty tomb is the surest, truest, strongest mandate from God that the penalty for our sin has been satisfied. It is finished. It is accomplished. And you can add nothing to it. And you can take nothing from it. You can receive it as it is when God calls you to life. Or you can ignore it in your death. And suffer for all of eternity for it. Because in the end, all sin will be paid for by death. There is no way around that. Either yours or Christ's. And if you are not found in Christ, the only option remaining is your own. Beloved, if we are Christians we are by definition found in Christ. If we are Christians, we are by definition sanctified, washed, forgiven, redeemed, justified. And in that, we have been set free from the constraints that fill the rest of the world with fear and terror and unease and doubt And hopelessness and sorrow and every vile thing that makes this life reprehensible. And all of their efforts and all of their attempts to make it more reprehensible so that they do not feel the vileness that is within them because they have polluted everything around them. They still live with the darkness that is in them. They cannot escape it in any way but to turn to Christ. Here's the truth. Nobody is telling them that except the body of Christ. Everybody else is bowing before them. Literally. Taking a knee before that evil. Beloved, if the church will not stand against evil, if the church will not stand against wrong, against sin, against all of the things that the world is shoving at us, then we truly deserve every vile thing they say about us. What is it that keeps us from standing? In a word? Fear. Doubt. Confusion. Chaos. All the very things that an anchor is designed to alleviate. Beloved, at the heart of it, our failure with the gospel comes down to a failure to understand who we are. It comes down to a failure to understand what Christ has accomplished And it comes down to a failure for us to understand how He has delivered us from everything around us. Over and above all of this, we need to recognize the truth that this steadfast anchor, this sure and certain hope is grounded in the reality that Christ has entered behind the veil and accomplished what was never accomplished before. We'll pick it up here next week. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, God, that you would grant to us a perspective on your truth that allows us to be shaped and conformed according to that truth. God, I pray that you would stiffen our spines and that you would grant us a desire to see Christ proclaimed unto the world. God, forgive us for the apathy that has driven us. Forgive us for our willingness to simply allow people to die and go to hell because it's easier. God, forgive us and change us that Christ would receive the glory and the honor that he deserves. And that He would receive from a watching world the praises that He is due. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.